0: everybody. Welcome to 321 No Kidding. We have a very special guest that qualifies for both and is going to educate us on a very important topic. Welcome, Sonia. Thank you. So excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So you have a pretty uh, important story to share, and I'm very honored that you're here to share it with us, with my audience, with me. I would love for you to introduce yourself. Maybe where are you, where are you calling in from? Maybe, you know, a little foundation, let them get to know you first and and then we'll take it from there. Okay. So I live in West Des Moines, Iowa.
1: I have been married 30 years. I have three children. I am a keynote speaker. I am a mental health advocate and I'm an author of my book, my memoir, An Impossible Life, which is the Eric Hoffer 2022 grand prize winner. Um, I am a suicide survivor. I have managed mental health disorders for over 35 years. I'm bipolar, obsessive compulsive disorder, and an anxiety disorder. And I'm here to tell you on this show that there is hope that you can have mental health struggles and still have a life worth living and have a great, joyful life because if I can do it,
0: anyone can do it. Wow. Congratulations on all of your accomplishments. That is amazing. Thank you. And if I understand you right, you're in the mental health fields as well. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. So mine is firsthand experience. I don't have my PhD. I don't, um, you know, I have my undergraduate degree, but it's not in that, but mine's a firsthand experience. I am part of Newsweek's expert, uh, forum and I'm a, I am, I speak about mental health to Fortune 500 companies, doctors, hospitals. They all have me. I'm, I'm a current psychiatric patient. I see my psychiatrist, my therapist. I'm on medicine. I'm in therapy. I think it's really important sometimes for people to hear. From her firsthand experience, that somebody who's really been through it and gone through it
0: and to hear their story and what's that like? Well, and you just proved that having bipolar, having OCD, having all these mental health you can't even call them obstacles because you've proven that they're not obstacles because you've accomplished so much. So I, that alone, like if we press stop right now, that should inspire everyone and give everyone hope. So I love that that's the kickoff to this conversation.
1: Yes. Yeah. I think that. um, And one thing I want to say about that is my mental illnesses have not changed from 35 years ago till today. All that has changed is my capacity, my strength, my ability, my skills to manage it. And I think all of us on our own mental health journeys, personal mental health journeys, we need to show ourselves grace along the way. Because I was tipping the scales at 250 pounds, I was in bed doing nothing. You know, my marriage was hanging on by a thread. And clearly, six years ago, my life got to a point where I felt like it was worthless. I had no purpose and I couldn't do it that I swallowed over a hundred antipsychotic pills in an attempt to take my life. Luckily the ER doctors were able to save it. But what I want to say today is that where I'm at today, if somebody would have told me six years ago, right? As I'm attempting suicide, that I would be where I am today. I wouldn't believe them. And so what I would say to people having mental health challenges is have a little more faith in yourself, believe in yourself a little more, and that there is purpose and recovery
0: there for you. Love it. That's totally in alignment with my messaging. So I appreciate that. Am I allowed to ask whatever I would like to ask? You can ask whatever you want. <laughs> my book?
1: Okay. okay, you should. Okay, my book like says everything. So I okay. I have nothing to hide. You can ask me anything and people have asked me very hard questions,
0: but I'm going to answer anything. Okay. Well, I'm very curious about so many aspects of this, like bipolar, for example, I think that there's, I think we have it in the, in the family consistently, but I'm not a doctor either, Right. So, I never really thought about having a combination of of different things, so that was interesting to me. but I'm curious you said that you were depressed in bed. What brought you to that pill moment like what it's a two part question. What got you to that moment where you were swallowing the pill? Was it just feeling that same way over and over again and then what the follow up question is. What would you say to someone who is in that position?
1: Right. And I'll throw in a little to make this even more difficult. My dad did die from suicide Mm. and, you know, my daughter even asked me a tougher question and he died from suicide before my attempted. So I know what it's like to have a suicide in the family and what type of heartache and wreckage that is. And I went ahead. To take my own life. So that should show you how bad of a place I was in knowing and witnessing the firsthand hurt of what my family went through. But still what I would say to you is you get in so much pain that all the love of your family, all the love of your friends becomes silent. The pain silences it all. And there you would do anything to get out of the pain. It feels like you're in a burning airplane and you have to jump. And so you people ask me and I don't want to get emotional either, but um, it's a really tough place to be because obviously I didn't believe my life was worth saving. Right. But thankfully there were doctors who did see value in my life. And saved my life. And I was in the ICU at a time that I didn't, I thought it was worthless. I thought it was hopeless. So that is where people get it's the pain they want to get out of. They don't want to hurt their loved ones. They don't want to leave their loved ones. And it's the
0: hopelessness and the darkness that just silences everything. Were you, did you ever use substances? Like, were you a drinker at all? Or like, did you self-medicate in any way before this happened? Okay. So in my religion,
1: we don't drink alcohol or smoke or do drugs. Thank heavens. Or I would be an addict. And I'm just going to say that straight up. So I used food as my um, addiction. So I gained, I, I was tipping the scales at 250 pounds. I, I could not eat enough. I could not shove enough food in me to fill this empty gaping hole, right? There was not enough food that could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've lost a hundred pounds and I've kept it off, but that was through gastric. I mean, I want, I wish I could tell you, Oh, I was healthy. I wanted this fabulous diet. No, I got gastric bypass surgery, which gave me a leg up, but you know, there's a lot of people who eat through their gastric and I've been able to maintain. There are some blessings in the world that I don't question. <laughs> so that one, I just feel like I'm going to take it. But I would say even today, I'm still very much an emotional eater, just not, you know, a whole cake, a whole pizza, a whole box of ice cream all in one sitting. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You brought up that your father had, I have a friend that's very sensitive about the language. So he calls it completing suicide versus attempting. So it's just something that now I know he's so sensitive. I kind of speak that way. We had, I had an uncle when I was a teenager that had done it. And the way I've always felt my story had gone was he saved my life by doing it because in the darkest days of gambling addiction as a survivor, yes, it always just was there, but it's, it's interesting to me because there seems to be some generational, and I guess because you're out there with the public so often, do you find that there is history of suicide runs in the family. Yes.
1: Yes. So it's um, yes. Um, So studies show that if you have suicide completion or suicide attempts, that your family is more apt to have that in that family, because that door has been opened. And um, also some biological, like my mental illnesses are um, genetic and there are people who have mental health illness or, you know, struggles that are environmental, right? And they get through those. So there is a difference. There's the mental illnesses that are biological. Mine is for life where there's some people who have mental health challenges, which we know right now, so many people are going through a lot of it is environmental, And you can have them come and go, come and go and have different periods of your life that you struggle with your mental health. And you, and you still need to get just as much help as I do. You still need to take care of it because it can get worse. You can get to the point where you want to take your life just because it's environmental. It's just as critical and just as important. But the good news for them is, is that they can get through it and have a stronger recovery Than someone who it's consistent, or you know, as you know, you know, just different people have different struggles, different biological, more addiction in their family, more genetic addiction. Maybe it was environmental addiction that brought there. It, it's just, it's not as black and white as we sometimes like to make it, or as simple. I mean, sometimes it's just a little more complicated.
0: I believe that to be true as well. And it is different per situation. I think I started getting my only benchmark or, or connection to it had been uncle Charlie. And then as I, as I come through my recovery and I learn, you know, gambling is the highest suicidary addiction um, out of all of them. And there's some logic too, you know, because drugs and alcohol can actually kill you in a different way. So there's no physical way, I guess, so it, the statistics kind of make sense. So that's part of why it was so important and why I was so drawn to having you here. There's a term in your paperwork, brain Pilates. Yes. And are you okay with me sharing a little something that I got? Yeah, go share yes? sure everything. Because I I thought that this was the most amazing point. I was at a um I was at a, he he was a physical trainer and he would go and do these workouts at the at the shelters Mm -hmm. and give out like good nutritional um, cards so they can get good groceries, all this stuff. So we would do a workout. And then afterwards he would share like a, you know, a positive kind of upbeat thing. So he asked the room one night, he says, would you rather lose all your teeth or your capacity to remember like your brain? And of course, everybody's like, well, obviously we can live without our teeth, but we can't live without our brain. And he goes, well, how can we brush our teeth three times a day, but we don't do anything to take care of our brain? Mm-hmm. So your brain Pilates sounds like something that could be a tool for taking care of the brain. Am I on the right track?
1: Yes. Yeah. My brain Pilates is about is taking care of your mental, your mental health. Yes.
0: Yes. Do you want to expand on that and share what?
1: Sure. sure. Brain Pilates, three ways to have mental health strength. You know, we always hear the typical eat right, sleep, exercise, and those are so critical for our mental health, but also there's other things that are just as important. So one of the tips for brain Pilates to build mental health strength is I always tell people to put an alarm on your phone or your watch. And when that alarm goes off for 60 seconds, I want you to stop everything you're doing and to start taking and do, and you have to find what works for you, either sit and deep breathe with your eyes open or eyes closed, or have music playing and deep breathe, or stand up and dance to one song, just dance. Even if you're all by yourself, just dance. And what that 60 seconds of just stopping and just dancing or deep breathing or listening to your favorite song or go step outside Because we know so many people are working from home. Now that alarm goes out. No, you go step on your porch and look up to the sky. If it's raining, if it's cold, doesn't matter. Breathe in the winter air, just connect for 60 seconds to something other than our phones, our computer, our work. And I'm telling you it works. And I have a mental illness, severe, So it works for me. It will work for anyone. I say do that three times a day and that builds mental health strength because it pushes pause and it forces us just to take that. And it's only three minutes a day, 60 seconds at a time to do something that just kind of strengthens you and shakes it up and brings a little joy. And so it's funny. I have people write into me to say, "Okay, I did my sixty-minute dancing," and they end up smiling or laughing as they're doing it. And that's what. And you. Nobody needs to be there, right? Or oh, I opened my door and just looked up. How many times do you look up to the sky instead of down, and just look up and take and do some deep breathing? And deep breathing, I'm sure everyone knows, is a thing that calms us down. So that's also it builds mental health and brain strengthen. It's getting oxygen in your body. It's calming you down. So that is one of my biggest tips of brain Pilates that really, really works. The second one is, um, sticky thoughts that you have whenever you have sticky thoughts and we all have them, a little thought of you're not enough or, Oh my gosh, that mistake I made, or, Oh my gosh, I shouldn't have said that to my coworker or my friend's Or it could be anything, little sticky thoughts that come in instead of engaging with them and being, having a conversation with them or believing them. Sometimes they're nonsense, right? You say you don't push them away and you don't engage with them. Instead you go, oh, and you name it. Oh, mine. I call mine sticky thoughts. You go, oh, I'm having a sticky thought. You're welcome to be here. And then you go right back to what you're doing. So if I'm cooking and I have a sticky thought, I just go, oh, sticky thought, you're here. You're welcome to be here. And then I change my focus right back. Oh, I'm cooking my eggs. It comes again. Oh, hello, sticky thought. You can be here. And then you go back and they lessen and they go away because you're not fighting them. You're not ignoring them because they want to be heard, but you're not engaging in them.
0: That's brilliant. I learned that through therapy that is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how how to survive without therapy. I, I tell people all the time I'm like, "Well, where do where do the people who aren't addicts go to learn like all their life <laughs> lessons and personal development and and then I realized sometimes it's church and and there's different methods, but for the longest time I couldn't figure out where normal people went to get mental health stuff. So tell me if you had to describe your mission like Why are you putting yourself out there? Why are you writing a book? Why are you here with me today? Like, what do you you want to accomplish? I feel like
1: addicts, as you know, I was, not only did I emotionally, but I was a shop addict. I spent over $150,000 in three months on worthless items. Okay. So the hit, right? Shop, you get a hit. Shop, shop, buy something, get that hit, that adrenaline. What I want to say to people is don't shame yourself. Don't feel you're alone. You're not alone. I wanted to speak up and share the unvarnished truth in my book, an impossible life. I share the unvarnished truth. It's like you get in a car with me. And you get to see what it's like to be involuntarily committed into a psychiatric hospital, how I got to my suicide attempt, how, what I, how I spent $150,000 in three months. You get to see what that feels like, what my thoughts are, and then how I overcome it and recover at the end. And I feel like I put my life out there. I put my memoir out there. I'm out speaking about this because if there's one person that I can let them know you're not alone. There is hope you will get through this. Then it's all been worth it. I always tell people. So if anyone out there buys my book, you need to write a message in it of hope and pass it on to someone else. This Mm -hmm. isn't about book sales. This is about how many people can touch one of my books. So you tell that next person that it could help. Okay. Write a message. Just even a line of you're not alone and pass it on, and pass it on, and pass it on until the book is worn out and has to be thrown away. And the reason is because I, you know, it also helps people who don't struggle understand us who do. I've had an email come from someone who said, you describe per- perfectly the emotions that I feel. And I just handed it to my loved ones and said,
0: read this. This is how it feels. So yeah. That's one of the scariest things like at least in my mind is yeah. family and the you know talking about the real stuff yeah. um, is really challenging so that that just like I had a, a physical reaction to you saying that like there's fear there like to talk about the whole truth, and I think with strangers it's almost easier than family. You know what? I love what you just said there,
1: because what you just said there is truth. My family struggles to talk about my father's suicide and death, and statistics show that it's not just society that struggles to talk about suicide or feels uncomfortable or doesn't know how to. The families struggle too that it is what you just said it's very difficult as a family or even my family. Talking about my suicide attempt or that I almost died, or even having sometimes honest conversations about this, you know, mental illness that goes through my nieces, my cousins, my nephews. And I think it's sometimes easier to kind of ignore it because it's, it can be hard to talk about, but it's necessary that we do. And that's why I feel like you doing what you're doing, your work, this, doing this, these podcasts. That this is brave. This is courageous. So I love what you're doing. And I think we all, you know, people say to me, what is the best thing I can do? And I say, use your voice however you can. And look, you are, however you can, if that's with your coworkers, with your friends, with your family, that's the most powerful influence that you are going to make to break stigmas. And so all of us can come forward and have these important conversations.
0: And we need to, and it's funny. I had stigma. So I have brain Pilates and stigma as two of the things I wanted to talk about. So thank you for leading us there. So you said you go into these, I have, I have multiple questions. You go into these big companies Mm -hmm. and can you paint the picture of how it might look before you come and visit and what the objective in the workspace could look like after you educate them a little more because it's changing. Like obviously COVID changed everything. Absolutely. And and for the better, in my opinion, in a lot of ways. Love that positive attitude. I'll take it. Love it. Well, I mean, we weren't talking about these things. Um, you know, and there's this as a supervisor, I've always been a supervisor. And I've always led through tasks and management, right? right? But you can't do that anymore. Like that's part of what's changing. You can lead that way, but in my recent job, I've had someone um, confess anxiety, someone right. confess um, autism. You know, yeah. like they they knew I was a safe space because I'm like, hey, someone else, tell me they're six years in recovery. I created that environment, but there's still this, now you have this people component and the, the get the job done component. And it's, it can be tricky to navigate, or at least that's my experience so far. So I'm curious about what, what are these companies trying to achieve? Is it, I wouldn't imagine it to be water cooler chat to be like, you know, I got diagnosed with, or um, I'm struggling with, like, what is the culture? Like, do you understand what I'm trying to ask? Yeah,
1: I, I do. I, I think we're in a, um, what you rightly said, we're in a moment of transition right now and that mental health of employees, leadership cannot be ignored anymore. And um, it is coming to the forefront. And, you know, with the stigma, people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to appear weak to their coworkers. They get worried they're going to get passed over for promotions, And this culture that needs to change. And it's not that you have to share all. It's not like, you know, you don't want to be each other's therapist, right? That's not a healthy thing to be. But there needs to be a more open conversation where leadership needs to share their own personal mental health challenges of, you know, I struggle with anxiety or I had to take a mental health day. And they don't need to get specific about, well, you don't have to get into, you know, into detail. You can keep it professional and, but you can say, I'm taking a mental health day. I'm, you know, I'm struggling right now with my mental health and I just need to take a day. And so having open, when I go in and have these open conversations, it opens the door. I like to create a safe, inclusive environment where I go in and share my story and make myself very vulnerable and then other people are able to come forward and talk. And then we share tips, obviously, about you know, the work environment, the new work environment, um, how to talk with each other about mental health challenges, where to go to get resources. I always love having the human resources come in and let them all know where they can go at the end. Um, I don't do that. I have them do that for their company, but, um, I think it's really critical that we have these conversations. And I think after I speak to these companies, they're very grateful and I let them know because I have pre meetings. I said, okay, you know what? This presentation and I have Q and A is going to let you know where your company is at with their mental health. This is, this is the starting point where this presentation conversation. Q&A is going to let you know, it's going to give you way more information about your company, your employees, your leadership, about where you guys are in creating a culture of mental wellness. Where are you on that spectrum? And it's very revealing. I'm
0: sure it is. I'm, I'm thinking back, we had a HR lady that was a yoga instructor and she would lead meditation. But I'll tell you, it is intimidating or you, there was bosses that would make us feel guilty. Like, Oh, like they don't realize that you're like rejuvenating. So you could yeah. do a better job. Yeah. But, and, and I used to be the same person. Yeah. The one who was like, what do you mean meditate? Like that's woo woo yeah. or, or whatever. So I get the judgy lens cause I live there for longer than I'm proud of for right. sure. But you can tell there was never leadership there. It was, you I know, really frontline, um, but man, would that have been different if, if, you know, one of the VPs or or someone with a fancy title was in that room, even the CEO should go. Yeah, yes. I agree yeah.
1: because it starts from the top up. So I always talk about the leaders. They need to lead by example and by them leading by example, it makes employees and other people like what you just said, if they were there it's like, Oh, we're doing this as a company. Okay. You know, and that's what creates a culture of mental wellness. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I love what you're doing. That's, that's so helpful because the ripple on that, because people change from company to company. So if you get it, you know, like the, the pollen is spreading. So yep. I really, I love that. Um, So do you mind, I guess I'm curious from a, a selfish perspective. We talked a little about family, I believe your kids were an instrumental part, right. Of getting you to the ER. Am I right on that?
1: Um, so, um, no, my husband found me in time and, um, called the ambulance and they came to my house. Um, my daughter was, and my son were on, um, service, uh, church missions at the time. And my 16 year old son um was there and um some of our friends came and got him and took him to the friend's house and after I got out of the ER um not out of the ER out of ICU and then got well enough they actually my son finished high school living with my husband's brother. I was in no shape to be a mother. It's one of my heartaches of my life. Life isn't always pretty things don't always go as the way we planned. I mean my whole identity was being a mom. I didn't work. I stayed home as a mother, but now look, I've got a full blown career. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I um, didn't work. And so my whole identity got blown up that I couldn't finish raising my 16 year old son. And we've had to go through therapy. I definitely did some damage there. If i like I said, I'm going to be honest. Yeah, there was damage. There was trauma done.
0: I did that and I own it. Yeah. I was, I was curious about the evolution. Like my mother calls it a one day event mm-hmm. and she's still convinced of that. And I'll just take the winds around it. I, I have too much exposure to information or a different kind of information. So I don't believe that it's a one day event, but trying to rebuild, I, I can't imagine it with, with three kids And being, you know, through your lens, because again, the lens that I see things through is just a little bit different. So is the how how has the approach been the last six years? Like, do you mind sharing a little about the journey of of recovery? You said you're in therapy together. Um, like what does it look like today? What was a little glimpse into the road?
1: Yeah, I would so the road was difficult. OK, uh, my son, you know, left his tennis team, his church friends, his high school friends. He left everything mid school year. I did it on December 12th, 2015, and he finished high school with his um, aunt and uncle and had to get new friends. You're in high school, all that. So it was a rough, rough, rough um Recovery for our relationship, it took therapy, yeah, he would not talk to me. he'd block my number. I mean there's just very difficult things, and I had to stand with willing hands and be patient to allow him to come to me and to and go through that process of forgiving me and I think that also there's truth in this, so he's twenty two years old now, and I was talking to my therapist and him and I have a very good relationship right now. Very good. We've made such headway, but I think we've also got to be honest. He hasn't fully opened up that box of trauma. He has only opened up what a 22 year old can handle. Okay. Mm -hmm. So as we go through our personal journeys in our lives, we don't, none of us just open up our box of trauma Full and go, okay, we're going to deal with it all. <laughs> it's too much, It's too overwhelming. So I th- think we more open up the box and we take a little bit out and deal with it and a little bit out. And we the process of recovery is a process. We are always continually recovering. It's not an end point. It's not an end date. We're always in the proper recovering. And so that's where I would say, my son and my relationship, Is very good. I'm he just came and visited for the fourth of July. We had a wonderful time. We love each other,
0: but we are in that process of recovery. Thank you. And you said forgiveness, his forgiveness. Have you forgiven yourself? Yes. But how I view, and we can all view this different.
1: You're looking at me right now, and you see me. What you can't see is inside. My scars, my battle wounds from my illness, my addictions, and trauma that I have had. And inside, I feel like, yes, I have healed, but they have left scars. Okay. And so I know they say time heals all wounds. I don't believe that, but maybe we'll meet when I'm 80 and I'll change my mind. But 51 years old, I don't believe time heals all wounds. I think that they heal, but leave scars. And so I think that we can learn to live with those scars and we can have a joyful life and we can learn lessons and become stronger because of them. But I would say it's still painful. It's, you know, I used to think, oh, I'm going to time heals all wounds and it's going to go away and it's going to fill. Like it never happened. No, you know, but there's lessons, there's wisdom I have. I wouldn't be the person I am today speaking to you. The compassion. So there's some goodness that comes out of it, but it doesn't change that the trauma happened, the scars happened. And so, yes, I have forgiven myself, but do I have days where it still really, really hurts and I cry for my son and what I did? Yes. Yeah. Six years later, even though he came and visited fourth of July and our relationship is looking good. Yes. There is still a scar there that hurts.
0: Wow. Thank you. That was, that was very powerful and a great illustration. And I'm so proud of you for recognizing all that you are all that's happening, being open-minded. Like I could tell you're my kind of person. Cause you said, who knows, check in with me when I'm 80, yeah. that, that you're open to new information and like, yeah. you're my kind of people for sure. Yeah. So you illustrated that wonderfully. Um, is there anything that I haven't for, you know, for, for this audience, like the normal working people or entrepreneurs on one side and then, um, it's interesting to me that you had the shopping and the food. So you had behavioral addictions, which is is very similar to gambling. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to speak about tonight?
1: Well, I want to tell your entrepreneurs and your other podcast too people um, coming, overcoming gambling to both of you being an entrepreneur, you face great obstacles and failure and people overcoming addiction also face great obstacles and failure. And so I don't want to get emotional, but I want you to know that you're stronger than you think you are. And this is, and the only reason I can say this with certainty, because I did not feel strong. And you know what? You've got to have a lot of courage to be an entrepreneur. You've got to have a lot of courage to deal with addiction. And I want your entrepreneur's And your people in recovery or attempting recovery, you are brave. You are courageous and that you've got this to believe in yourself a little more, have a little more faith. And I say, dream a little more, dream bigger, because I believe everything that you've been through all your entrepreneurs, all the failures, everything that they're going through to get that success or all the people in recovery fighting to, you know, with addiction fighting for the recoveries, that you will, you will have something stronger, better than even what you imagine. Because it's happened for me. And six years ago, I was you know ready to take my life. And where I am today is nothing what I thought it could be. So that's where I would
0: say to both of them is that I believe there's great things waiting for you all. Oh, I love it. And you started with hope and it sounds like you're ending on hope and, and thank you for being an example and a brave example to show up for the world and, and share your story. Like time doesn't make it go away. And I could see your vulnerabil- vulnerability, with us tonight. And, and I just want you to know how much I appreciate you. And, and I'm glad that you were here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Oh, but I want people to know they can go get my book An a possible yeah. life at Amazon and go get, go get it. And if you can't afford it, have them contact you and I'll mail you one. I'm telling you, go get it. It will give you hope, courage, and pass it on to someone. I truly, truly, that is why I come and speak. That is why I put my life out there is I truly want to help people and spread the news that there is hope. So go to, a so go to Amazon and get an impossible life and um, share it.
0: Yes. And we'll make sure that we have links and, and that we're letting everybody know and make it easy on them as well. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for being here, Sonia. I am going to say good night, but this was an absolute pleasure. I love what you're doing. You keep doing your mission and purpose too. Thank you so much.